0: Welcome to the Doctor McGill Podcast. Uh, this episode is going to be a little bit different than my prior episodes. Uh, I had a guest lined up, and we were going to do the uh, recording last Tuesday, but unfortunately, he flaked on me, and uh, I was sort of scrambling a little bit. And I had actually recorded an entire separate podcast, sort of like uh, just me talking. And I was working out with you guys all know. Justin, Mr. J Fit, uh, The Machine, you know, got a lot of, a lot of aliases. Uh, we were working out yesterday, and I was telling him the quandary that I was in, and uh, he had a really, really great idea. Uh, he said, I'm coming up on a year of my podcast. You know, this is going to be, I believe, episode 18. Is that right, Ish? Episode 18? 19. Episode 19. It's going to be episode 19. And he said, I think it's time for you to be in the guest seat, which is where I'm sitting now. I usually sit on that side. And, uh, you know, maybe for you to answer some questions, you know, because maybe people want to get to know me better. And I thought that was a great idea. So that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to turn it over to my man who's the host of the podcast, Justin Jefferson, at Mr. J Fit. You can find him on Instagram, all over social media. He's a fitness powerhouse, a true beast. If you listen to his podcast that we recorded, was, I think my fifth or sixth podcast was a very special one. And, you know, you can learn a lot all about Justin, but he's the host now, so I'm turning the mic over to him.
1: Well, once again, it's a pleasure to be back here, um, so thank you for allowing me to do the honor of interviewing you on this very, very special occasion, and and first and foremost, congratulations on coming up on a year. I appreciate um, that, man. I don't think people realize how much work these things really are and what goes into you Know an entire podcast and getting it shot and edited and organizing it, and, and especially in your case, you have different guests on, so I'm sure it's a ton of work. So, congratulations, man! Thanks, and my man. I, Thanks. I've been enjoying them along the way, I've been listening to them. I'll check them out when I'm doing some cardio, um, when I'm driving in the car because I'm, I'm really a, a, a podcast person, so definitely, definitely love to consume the, the Dr. Mudgill podcast yeah, thanks, on a regular man. basis, man. So I'm that excited. means a lot. No, nah, mean, it means a lot for me to be here, man. But without further ado, I do want to keep a common theme that you do have going in your podcast. You do ask everyone what their definition of success is. So let's start there. What is your definition of success?
0: Well, I think that's a great question. Justin. It's just something that I do ask all my guests. And, you know, I've said it a bunch of times in all my podcasts, uh, sort of inflected on this when my guests are giving me their definition and you know, this is something that's kind of evolved for me over the course of years. Um, when I was a kid, I thought success meant, you know, having the Benzos and you know, the Porsches and the Rolexes and all the bling and all that stuff. And I think that's something that's pretty common to, to most kids, you know, that's what you really equate success with, um, material stuff, like having a big house and fancy cars and those sorts of things. Um, But having, and I didn't come from a lot growing up, as you know, as you know, um, and having gotten to a point in my life where that actually became somewhat of a reality, you know, through my practices and, you know, working really hard and, you know, working my ass off, uh, I realized that that is not what success is all about, you know, I mean, those material possessions are, they give you very temporary pleasure, you know, I'm talking very temporary, it's fleeting, you know, a week, two weeks, maybe. Mm. And then you start to become a slave to those things, and you know that's if that's what success is, then it's a shitty place to be because, you know, truthfully, going through that period of my life, it really made me become very introspective because I was like, you know what, this isn't what I thought this is what success was all about. You know, being able to play golf a few times a week and right. having a nice house and nice cars. And what I realized during that period, and I did a lot of introspection during that time of my life because it was. Um, it was a few months, thankfully, it was very short lived, but it was a really empty time in my life and I realized like looking back at what really made me happy over the course of you know at that point the three and a half decades that I was on the planet was embracing the hustle and grind, and that that pertains to anything so when I was in med school, and you know we'll talk about this later on in the podcast, I'm sure, but there was like an aha moment, like a light bulb went off, and that's the first time in my life I actually really started to apply myself. And mm-hmm. that was at the age of twenty three, I think I was. You know, I kind of coasted up until that age, um, and I was able to get by coasting, but that 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 was the first time I really hustled and grinded. You know, and I got so much pleasure out of that, and um, you know, I got so much personal fulfillment out of that, like really busting my ass in med school. And then, you know, that sort of has happened, like, multiple times in my life. Um, You know, building my practice. I started with nothing, and and I had no patience. I was over a million dollars in debt, and and I worked my ass off to, like, you know, get myself out of that. And, you know, coming out on the other side through that hustling grind was very self-empowering. As you know, and you've been a big part of this, I had an incredible fitness transformation over the course of now. It's eight years that I'm going into, um... And that was very empowering, you know. So through those, principally through those three experiences in my life, I came to understand, for me personally, the definition of success success is embracing the hustle and grind for whatever your goal is. The hustle
1: and the grind. And, you know, that's one thing I, I respect about you is because for a lot of people, hustle and grind sounds cool to say. You know, sounds cool to type in a post, but I, I've watched you live it. I've known you for has it been seven years, somewhere yeah. around there, 2011, right? 2011, I think. 2012. 2012. Yeah, yeah. I've known you since yeah. 2012. Man. Yeah. Yeah, I've watched you live it. Yeah. Um, first, my first interaction with you, obviously, was in, in the gym when, when I was working at Equinox and just seeing you work, your work ethic yeah. there, you know, and as I got to know you more over the years, seeing you you grind it out through your your business and build things up, and it's it's really been incredible to see, and I'm not surprised though that you've been successful in life because you're it seems sometimes it's a lot of times it tends to translate over into everything else everything that you do you know they they say how you do anything is how you do everything right right, and I've never seen you do anything halfway you know, and I know you said you coasted until about twenty three so I'm actually yeah. uh definitely interested in hearing a little bit more about that like what was your you're, just take it. Let's take it way back for a bit to your childhood. Um, what was that like? Like, I know you grew up in Brooklyn.
0: Yes, yeah, so we started out in Brooklyn. My mom was a physician. She was a resident when I was really little. She had trained in India, then had to go through all her training again here. And if you, my very first podcast with my mom, she had a very very tough life. Yes, I heard. heard. And uh, you know, I get emotional sometimes when I talk about it. But she um, she hustled and grinded, man, for us, for my brother and I. She was a single parent, raised two boys. And I grew up in Brooklyn. There were nine of us living in a three bedroom apartment. Wow. And those are my fondest memories, man. Because you know, we didn't have money. You know, there's roaches all over the apartment. You know, you turn on the light, and the roaches would kiss. Like, Scatter. you know, it was crazy. You know, looking back at it and, you know, the way that I live now, like it's hard to wrap my head around it. But we didn't think about that at the time. You know, I was living with my cousins, my brother. You know, it was so fun. You know, my mom. Yeah would go to work really early in the morning. My grandma would make me breakfast. and you know It was just a really sweet time. And my brother, who's seven years older than me, when he was about to start high school, we were in, we were in Start City, which isn't the greatest part of Brooklyn. It's very close to East New York. Okay. It's, the proje- it's basically like the projects. It's right. like a nicer version of the projects, but it's the projects. And uh, the schooling there wasn't great. So when my brother was about to start high school, my mom was, you know, she's like, we have to move to like a better area uh, with the better schools. So we moved to the south shore of Long Island to a town called Rockville Center, but I went to Oceanside School. So my brother was starting high school, and I was going into first grade at the time. So we moved out here to Long Island, and uh, it was 1981. I had just turned six. And it, you know, interestingly enough, at that time in Long Island, like where I grew up, it wasn't diverse at all. So oh, I, was, imagine, yeah. I was the – I think I was one of two or maybe three Indian kids <clears throat> in my entire elementary school. There was, like, a shit ton of racism. Um, Sorry, to hear that. I, No, it is it is what it is. You know, that's just what the times were like. People just were, you know, the world was a smaller place back then, right? So Definitely. there wasn't Instagram. There wasn't Facebook, you know. Um, and it's just the way it was, you know. That's just, and I don't have any resentment towards it. You know, people just weren't knowledgeable to, especially kids, you know. Yeah, exactly. To, like, Embrace other cultures, and I was like a weird. I was like a weird kid, you know. Like I was like this brown kid in a white school. You were different,
1: and they weren't.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, for yeah. not yeah to 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 the to outside them. world, I was weird. I was like, yeah, right. like I didn't belong, you know. And and that that was always a very looking back now. Like I never, I was living through it, so I didn't really think about it that much. But I think a lot of that really defined, you know, who I was in a weird way because I never wanted to be who I was growing up, you know, because I was always the odd man out, you know, especially in those mm-hmm. younger years. I always felt like, why can't I be like everybody else? You know, like, why can't we celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or, right, you know, right. we had these traditions that were, no one was doing that shit when I was growing up, you know, like the holidays now, like, you know, in our school district, we get the volley off, which is like the big Indian holiday. Right. No one even knew who that shit was when I was growing <laughs> up, you know, um, but and it's almost like a sense of guilt feeling that way, like, you know, having felt that way. But now, like, I really embrace my culture, you know. And I think having gone through that where you're kind of, like, hiding from it, and, you know, uh, just because it's almost like a matter of survival, you know, like trying to assimilate. Right. Um, but, you know, now the pendulum swings back the other way because, you know, the world is a different place and I always feel a lot more comfortable in my skin. Um, but you know I had a lot of great memories growing up to a lot of great friends uh It was just like a regular blue collar neighborhood essentially um you know we'd play wiffle ball on the block and manhunt and all the things that kids do and uh, you know i had a, I had a great childhood man you know it was it was uh it, it was it was a good place to grow up you know and it really informed um in many ways who I am today you know
1: yeah, definitely. And listen, you you turned out to be a, an extraordinary human being who contributes to society every day. I appreciate it, I man. mean, you are a world-class dermatologist. Uh, I, please correct me if I'm wrong. Pathologist. Is that correct?
0: I see. I'm a dermatologist and a dermatopathologist. Right. So I do two things. <coughs> yeah. So I'm board certified in both of those things. And my practices, that's what I do in my practices. Uh, see, I
1: didn't want to get that wrong. No, no you got it, man. All right. Perfect, perfect. So as we fast forward a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, take us through maybe your high school, sure. your last maybe one or two years of high school before college, did you already know you wanted to pursue medicine or were you, were you kind of still undecided at this point?
0: So since, since I was a little kid, since I was four or five years old, like my mom literally <laughs> beat it into my brother and my head that, you know, we have to be doctors. Like It was oh, just wow, like, okay. you know, for her, being a single parent and being able to raise two boys on her own, being a doctor was like, in her mind, like, the reason why she was able to do it, like she had a mm. steady job. She, did, she worked for the government, she worked for the VA hospital, so she wasn't right. like you know like the doctors that you think like the you know drive around in the benzes and all that shit. It was like you know, <laughs> right, we, right. You know she was making a very, very, very modest income, but it was a steady, stable job. She was able to work from nine to five essentially, and then be home for us at night. Right. You know there was no call, so for her, it was an ideal situation where she could work as a professional make a modest living, but also be able to raise her two boys. Um, so with that mindset, she always knew that if we became doctors, and she's, this is what she always says, I want you to be able to stand on your own two feet. You know? So she knew if we became doctors, we'd be able to do that. So it was literally beat into us. Like, my brother, I remember when he was in college, he wanted to go to law school. And my mom said, that's no problem. You go to law school, but you have to go to medical school first. You know? mm, so that was like, wow. there was no choice. Um, so when I, even when I went to college, like, you know, there was like, you know, you're going to med school basically, you know? So, so just, I, I never really even considered doing, I mean, if you ask any of my friends, like what I said I wanted to be, well, growing up when I was a kid, a it's like a doctor, you know, I mean, that's just, that's what I have to do. Wow. So
1: since you were taught, like, young,
0: pounded just, into me, man. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and I'm glad, you know, like I, you know, it, it's, I can't imagine doing anything else. So, you know, you know, my right. mom. You know, I don't know if it was because I was brainwashed to wanting to do it, <laughs> but I do love what I do, and you know, for me, it's a perfect job. You know, so it's it, it all worked out.
1: It's just a random question: Did your brother actually finish med school and then go to law school? Yeah,
0: he he actually went through med school. He's he's an he's an ophthalmologist. So, oh, you yeah. see that? So he just yeah. ended up sticking with it. Yeah, I mean, he and I, I would say, you know, if I could be bold enough to speak for him, uh, I don't think he has any regrets either oh. with his career trajectory. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, so going back to like what high school was like. So I was. Um, I was actually a pretty bad student. Um, I never really cared much about school. I was just like I was. I was kind of like an outsider, so I used to get into a lot of fights. I got suspended a bunch of times. Wow, really? um, so this is like during like my middle school years. Um, you know, I was always like good at taking tests, so I could take tests very well, like standardized tests. But I, I did. I did not apply myself at, at all in school, and my mom was so busy, you know, with work. And with my older brother, who at the time was, like, kind of applying for colleges and, you know, dealing with stuff that was a lot more pressing than me being in, like, you know, elementary school, I really slipped through the cracks. Um, mm, just kind of got pushed along. Just coasted by. I was, like, uh, you know, I remember one time my report card, I got, like, you know, I got, like, a bunch. I got, like, two or three Ds and, like, a couple of Cs. This was when I was in seventh grade. And I was, like, shitting in my pants, like, how am I going to bring this report card home? Wow. My mom. My mom still doesn't know this to this day, but now she will find out. She will listen to this. (laughs) I remember going to the public library and just making a fake report card on the computer and giving it to my mom, and she totally fell for it.
1: Now, did you make it look like the actual?
0: Yeah, as much as I could, you know, like the the, (laughs) like word processing wasn't as sophisticated back then, right? But as much as I could, like it was enough that she never. I mean, now she knows, but um, I mean, I was really a really really bad student. (laughs) but my mom knew like she knew that if i she knew that you had to take ap classes and you had to like get into that track in order like you know, in her mind to go to a good college and you know to her that was very important so um when i was in ninth grade i was in like just the standard track so there was like an honors track and like there was the honors track a regular track and i forget exactly what it was but i was in like the regular to like just the regular track. So you never go from the regular track to the AP track. It's just, right. you know, you can't. You can't make that jump. Right, right. But remember, my mom talked to my, the AP class you could take in 10th grade was AP European History. And um, my mom talked to the teacher. and said, listen, I need my son to get in, to go to AP European History next year. Because in her mind, that's like, you know, you got to get on that track.
1: Yeah. And she
0: like, man. you know, he, there's no way. Like, you know, he just can't. He can't handle it. Like, you know, he's not a strong enough student. You know, he'll just get destroyed. And my mom's like, no, like, He's going into that class, and, you know so she forced me into that class, so that's tenth grade, and um it's crazy, man, like that was like this sort of like a mini turning point for me because those guys that I was in class with in that tenth grade class are still my best friends to this day, Wow, and awesome. we all kind of grew up near each other, and I realized that like wow, they were like really smart guys, but they're also like cool, you know, like it was like it was kind of like, cool to be smart, yeah you know, yeah, definitely. So that would that's like when I kind of started applying myself a little bit more and you intensely to that, that APA. But it wasn't even like that big a deal. Like I would basically just do the minimum amount required to like get an A, you know? So Oh the the minimum required for an A. Right so but <laughs> honestly, like that was like my frame of mind, you right. know. So I and I did well. You know, I did well on like did well in that class so i was probably you know me and my buddies like it was very competitive back then it was like back in the day like when they used to like literally put everyone's grade on the on the board would used right? to like hang it up Sorry, yeah they use? literally would be like okay these are the top five grades you know there was nothing oh, pc wow. back then it's like totally different than it was now <laughs> and our goal was always we had a study group was me and two of my buddies and our goal was always to like have the highest average and like we pretty much always did like you know we were just competitive it was like a right. sport for us you know right But I realized then that wow, okay, it's cool. Like I could be smart and I could, you know, still have fun, like hang out with my friends and stuff like that. So that was like the first turning point. But I remember just because I had such a bad track record in high school that even for me to get into. So I remember like in my senior year, like BC calculus was like the big class to take. You know, like eight kids took it, and like you know the teacher didn't want me to go into it because he didn't think I was ready. But I was always good at math, so I was like I put my foot down. I was like I'm going into that class and. And that that for me, and I crushed it, you know. But I remember this vividly, and this still fucking drives me crazy. We everyone used to copy off of me. Like my boys used to copy their homework off of me, you know, calculus. (laughs) But but the teacher thought I was a clown because he had me in ninth grade when I wasn't a good student. So he accused me of copying off of them. Wow. Okay. (laughs) He literally pulled me aside. It's like, dude, you're gonna grit your your uh The wrong answers, the right answers—they're all the same. Like you, you can't copy off of these guys. I was like, no, 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 (laughs) they're copying off of me. He's like, no, and I was like, all right. I I was like, listen, wait to see what happens when we take the AP test. And I remember I just crushed the AP test, and both of those guys totally bombed it. And I remember going to school in the (laughs) summer because I knew he was there. I was like, I told you, man. Like you know, so it was little things like that that started. You know, I had like this little motivation in me, but I never really applied myself much. So again, I would do like the minimal amount, you know, which um, which was enough. You know, it was enough to get by and to get through, but it was, um, well, we'll get into it, but, you know, it, was, it wasn't It was until, like, much later on, after college, that, like, one of my friends, who was a friend of mine from college, uh, and maybe I should backtrack a little bit, so...
1: Yeah.
0: So uh, I'm just gonna keep talking, man, because I want to roll here. So, so when Go we w- when I went when I went to college, I went to Emory for college. I remember my first semester again, barely did anything. Just would study for the test the night before, take the test, boom. Uh, my first semester I had a three seven six, and I got I was pretty proud of myself. You know, I think I had like three A's and like a B plus or something like that. It was, it was something like that. And I got my grades. Told my mom, I was like, you know, like I got to these great grades, and she, I remember she looked at the my report card she's like you know this is terrible you know she's like i'm not gonna pay whatever it was then for you to go to this private school and get these kind of grades she's like if you if you don't get a three nine or above then you're coming back and going to state school she's like i'm not and she was legit serious like she was like like that was, those are some bullshit grades and you have to do better or this is not worth my money so i literally didn't get anything less than an a for the rest of college so like wow. for me my mindset was Okay, I got to do the minimum amount to get an A. So I think I graduated with like a three nine nine or three nine, whatever. It was some very high GPA because I never got anything but an A after that.
1: So You could just turn it on, like.
0: Yeah, but it wasn't that hard, you know. Like it wasn't that, you know. I was, I could figure it out. Like I could figure out how to take a test, how to study for a test, how to like, you know, work the system a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I remember one time when I was a sophomore, I got like a, I was taking, I was a math major at the time. Me and one of my buddies were math majors, and. I got a D on the first test and I was like fuck I was like if I if I get like a C in this class I'm never gonna get into medical school. Like I was literally shitting in my pants. And was the test that hard? Did you not study? you know it was just it was above my head like the people that were, were the people in that class were just much more like math minded than i was you know yeah i hate math you know so i was and i was always very good at math you know but it was like very abstract stuff and you know it was i realized then that i just need to get out of this class yeah, and drop being a math major and like do something that's you know more suited for my mind so i remember talking to the teacher he was like this like, he was kind of like this jockey, big guy from the south you know and i said i was like listen i was like I, I'm in the wrong place. I shouldn't even be in this class. You know, I'm not equipped to be a math major, but I need to get out of this class without my GPA getting killed because I want to go to medical school, you know? So he's like, all right. So like, you know, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, if I get a hundred on every test, like the next two tests and the final, then you have to give me an A for the class. Even though the average wouldn't, wouldn't have averaged out today because right. there's only there's three tests and the final or something like that. So he's like, all right. He's like, Deal. He actually agreed to this, and I literally got a hundred on every test, and and got out with a day And then I dropped the math major right away. I was done. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So I mean, but little things like that. Those are like the reason why I'm telling it is not to like you know, you know, toot my horn. But th- there was like little glimpses of what I was capable of. You know, like and I, even to this day, like I sometimes you think back on those things. There, you know, these like little nuggets of success that you had, which I think really empowered me later on right you know so what was the aha moment
1: where you decided the bare minimum was no longer enough so when
0: I went when I went to med school I went to Stornyburg for med school and it's a class of 100 and like med school is a different game like everyone there is you said a class of 100 there's 100 kids in the class um and 95 of them are like very fucking smart you know so I remember when I got to Emory My dream was always good to go to like an Ivy League school, and and I remember when I applied to all of the Ivy League schools, and like, you know, Duke, I want to go to Duke, or I want to go to like, you know, like a really good college, you know, but I got rejected from every single one of them, you know, because I wasn't a strong enough student, you know, my grades weren't good enough, you know, my standardized test scores were fine, and I did well towards the end of high school, but in my mind, I was like, uh, like, you know, I, 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 Emory's a great college, and I have nothing bad to say about it, but... I almost like felt like I belong at one of these other schools and I'm here. It was like my safety school, you know? And when I got to med school, like more than half of the class is from an Ivy League school. So there's like, you know, a bunch of kids from Harvard, a bunch of kids from Yale, a bunch wow. of kids from Columbia, a okay. bunch from Cornell, yeah. a bunch from Penn, a few from Princeton, some from Duke, you know, all these great schools that are represented. And I always had this chip on my shoulder. Like, you know what? I didn't get to one of those schools. So like I'm just not as smart as these guys. You know, like they're much smarter than me, you know? And, um, my first year of medical school, I, I was, so the class is a hundred and like the way it's great, it's like honors, high pass, pass, fail or something. I think it's something like that. So I was right in the middle of the class. I honored a couple of classes, I high passed a couple of classes, I passed a couple of classes, but I was like right in the middle. So probably like, you know, if there was a ranking, I was between like, uh, 40 and 50 somewhere, you know, like solidly in the middle. And uh, I was, you know, I was like, all right, cool. I'm hanging with the big dogs, you know, like all these really, really smart kids, you know. And my friend from college, his name is Sammy. He was, he was, a, he's, he's an orthopedic surgeon now. Really, really smart kid, but really hardworking kid. So we were always the kids in college that had like the highest grades on like the tests, you know, like whatever organic chemistry or whatever it was. Okay, this is an it was undergrad. Like, this is undergrad. It okay. was always Sammy and Hash, you know. And I was like a hippie kid. I had like long hair, you know. And Sammy was kind of more <laughs> of like a straight dude. And Sammy, like, worked really hard, but was an amazing student. And I would always do well on tests, you know. So there was always, like, the two of us, you know. And Sammy came to visit me when I, was, when I was in my first year of medical school. The summer between my first and second year. Sammy went to Emory Medical School. I went to Stony Brook. So he came to hang out for a week. And he asked me, he's like, hey, man, how's, like, med school going? And I was like, oh, it's going pretty good, man. You know, I'm, like, right in the middle of the class. Uh, you know, I honored a couple classes. I passed a couple classes. And, dude, he looked me straight in the eye I will never forget this. And this is literally the single most motivating moment of my life. He looked me dead in the eyes, totally serious, my friend. And he said, for once in your life, why don't you apply yourself? I was like, what? He's like, dude, just try. Just try. See what happens. And I'm telling you, man, that was a fucking life-changing moment. That was the bullshit you you needed. So that next year, the school year started, and I literally read the material to learn it. I was like, let me read this, you know, instead of like, like going through something like 10 times to just memorize it, to take the test. I would read it one time slowly just to learn it. I still never went to a single class in medical school. I did all the shit that I usually do. Like, you know, like I wasn't like, you know, I, I didn't care about going to a classroom and listening to the teacher. I would, the, all the classes were transcribed. So you'd get okay. the transcript of the class. So like a week before the test or a, you know, four or five days before the test, I would sit and I'd study, you know, so I would just chill and then study, you know, like study crazy hard and chill very hard. So I remember just going through the transfers very slowly to learn it. And like I had like such an understanding of the material. And then I remember that very first test that we took. It was microbiology. I think the average on the test was like a 60 something. Like and they would like, you know, they would um curve, you know, curve it curve it up. I got like a ninety-five raw score. Wow. And I was like, oh shit. I was like, this is some serious shit, you know? And that, literally I just kept doing that for the, for the rest of us, so or for everything really going forward at that point, I was like, oh man, I was like, this is, it's totally different. It's, it's kind of like, I mean, it sounds so stupid to say and it sounds very arrogant, but it's, it's like, it must be like how like a Michael Jordan or a LeBron feels, you know, like, yeah. cause they put in so much work and they're so talented, you know, and it's like, just, it's like a too. different game almost, yep. you know? And I, I'm not saying I'm that, but I'm saying I felt what it must feel like to be that, you know, cause I would study and, it was just like a different level of understanding that I had. Like I would take a test. It was almost like a game, you know, and it really kind of went through that, like just basically from there forward for like anything academic. It just was always, e- it was, not that it was easy. I'd work hard and I'd learn the material, but I never worried about the test. I was like, dude, I got this, you know, like I, I know, yeah, the, like you know, you
1: had it under control.
0: Yeah. Like, you know, like, listen, LeBron steps onto the court. He knows he's going to yeah. fucking drop 50 points if he wants to, you know, it was kind of like that sort of feeling. You know,
1: and that was your your aha. See, that was, and I know it all to Sammy,
0: man. You know, because I never had the confidence in myself to think I had that kind of talent. You know,
1: yeah, and so that carried you all through med school. Dude, the
0: rest. I mean, it was like when we were doing our surgical rotations. You know, like you know, watch those like TV shows, right? And, like, they, you know, like, they pimp everyone, like, on rounds. Like, you know, they say, you know, what's this artery? And, like, you know, they go through everyone. and You have to, like, so see what it is. So you can wait for them to call on you? So, no, dude, it, this is how it was. So in the beginning, they start with, like, the youngest person. So right. that would be me, the third-year medical student. Then they go to the fourth-year medical student, the intern, the resident, the 2nd resident, the third-year resident, the chief resident. And if they don't know it, then the attending says the answer. I, there was this book that was called Surgical Recall, where it has, like, all, like, the things that they pimp you on. Dude, no joke, I fucking memorized the entire book. Like, I read it really slowly. I would memorize it, you know? So it came to the point, like, where we're on rounds. By, like, the second week, they would go through everybody. Everyone called me Hash. That was my nickname. They'd go through everybody. They'd be like, all right, Hash, what's the answer? I'd be like, boom. You know, like, I just, wow, I awesome, had such man. a command, like, of the material, you know? And it, it was, it's, that's the way I've approached everything in my life from there forward. So, like, working out, nutrition. It's like, I'm, you know, you only know me as going balls to the wall with stuff. That's all I know from you, yeah. Right. Uh, but that's like my, the second half of my life that I've been balls to the wall. But I'm literally like that now with everything. It's like nothing is, if I am going to do it, I'm going to do it, man. Yeah. You know, because why not? I've never right? seen you do anything halfway. Right. But that's, it's funny because people that know me for my entire life, it's like, you know, I, I mean, I don't know what, I'm more sure they've seen some kind of change in me, I guess. But, uh, sure. but, um yeah, I mean that's that's why I do that. It's all because of Sammy.
1: Well, shout out to Sammy.
0: Yeah, Sammy Khan, if you're listening, man, thank you.
1: <laughs> um, so, all right. So, as we're going through residency, you have your aha moment, and through college, excuse me, through college, you have your aha moment. You go into med school. At what point did you decide on dermatology?
0: So, I, I between my second and third year, there's a thing called the Howard Hughes Fellowship, which is it's kind of like the Rhodes Scholarship of med school, okay. and I applied for one in my second year. And I got it. And I remember when I got it, actually, like, it's like a big deal. Like, this is like a big yeah. deal to get. I remember I told my mom, I was like, mom, guess what? I got a Howard Hughes Fellowship. And she was like, uh, she, I remember she, like, was talking to, like, her colleagues. Like, do you think he should really take a year off? Like, I don't know if that's a good idea. He should get through med school. They're like, no, no, you don't understand. He's like, got to take a year off for this thing. So I took a year off and I actually did skin cancer research. And oh, nice. that was actually another sort of cool, like, little win in my life. So when you do, like, the, the research – you all go down to the NIH after, or the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which is in Bethesda, Maryland, and you all present your research. And there's, there was like I think 25 of us. Or no, there was 40 of us from around the country. And again, I was the kid from Stony Brook, which is like a very small medical school. And everyone else there was from like Harvard Medical School, Stanford Medical School, all the big schools. And you present your research. You're basically competing for five scholarships that will pay for the entire rest of medical school and all your living expenses and all that stuff. And uh, I went into that presentation. I remember so prepared. I bought one of those slide projectors to my – hotel room and I used to literally just project the slides on the wall of the hotel and like practice my presentation you know just so it was like so like second nature you know and uh and I crushed it man and I won one of those five scholarships you know Uh, but I but you know it was I knew I was going to you know like I knew like if I did it if I put the work in even though I was really intimidated again just being around all those like super high caliber academic minds you know just because, you know, I, I, even even to this day, if someone's like, oh, I went to, like, Harvard or Stanford or something like that, I'm like, oh, shit, man, wow. That's, I mean, that's dope. You must be, like, a genius, you know? It's like those those things you feel growing up, they still yeah. carry over later on in life, you know? Like, you have, like, it's almost like instant cred with me, you know? Like, wow, that's well, amazing. Well, because you, you know what know? it takes. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but also, I, I didn't get in, you know what I mean? So, that I didn't get into those schools. So, you know, I, it's like I have a tremendous amount of respect for the people that did. You feel like you if you know?
1: applied, had that self-application percent, in high Thousand school, you've gotten, yeah, no uh, I would
0: assume, I would think so too. No doubt, but I didn't, you know.
1: So all right. Listen, you got yeah. it. Thanks to Yeah, Sammy no regrets, along, no so. regrets.
0: You know, I, and I tell my wife this all the time because I, I have kids now who are going to start going through all that stuff. And, you know, the truth is you end up where you're supposed to be. You know, if, if I did miraculously get into one of those colleges, I probably would have been eaten up alive because I wasn't ready for it. You know, I needed to kind of go through things the way I went through them and then have Sammy talk to me in medical school. Like, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, because you wouldn't have met Sammy. Probably, yeah, and I never would chance. have, like, yeah, just everything happens for a reason. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I have zero, zero regrets with the way things turned out. Um, and that's what I convey to my wife about our kids is like, listen, there's no reason to put so much crazy amount of pressure on them. I mean, we should. They should do well academically. But if they end up, whatever they end up for college, that's where they're supposed to go, you know? And then they'll figure it out. That's it. That's
1: it. So, so you get through, you figure out dermatology is the way you finish uh, med school. I guess you have to go through rotations at yeah, so the you end. Do,
0: So you do med school, then you do an internship, and you do a residency. So I did okay. my dermatology residency at Mount Sinai in New York City, okay. where I'm still on staff, and I made some of the best friends I have in life there. Um, and then I did a fellowship in dermatopathology, which is the second thing I'm boarded in, okay. at the place called Ackerman Academy of Dermatopathology in New York City. Bernie Ackerman was like this guy who was like the god of dermatopathology. And um, again, another one of like a mentor that I had that really kind of steered me in the right direction. I was at the point where I was doing my residency and I said, you know what? I'm thinking I'm just going to go and practice. I'm just going to practice dermatology. And one of my attendings who actually played a really big role with me going to Mount Sinai, his name is Dr. David Kriegel, who's just an amazing mentor in my life. Um, he said to me, he's like, you know, you should think about applying for a fellowship because he was a surgeon. He was a skin cancer surgeon. And he said, you yeah, know, because when patients come to see me, yeah, they like that I'm a dermatologist, but they're like, yeah, but you know, but he's also a skin cancer surgeon. He's like, for you, if you do a dermatopathology, it's like, okay, he's a dermatologist, but he's also a dermatopathologist. It's like, huh? I was like, you know, that really kind of stuck with me. But I wanted to stay in the city. You know, I, I, had, uh, I, I was married and my wife and I were living in Manhattan. So I didn't want to leave. And she was working in the city. Um, so I applied to one, I, this is the place, like the Ackerman Academy. So I applied to one place and I was fortunate enough to get into it. And uh, so I did another year of training there. And then my first year out of fellowship, I was working, kind of doing two things. I was working in a lab up in Westchester, and I was seeing patients in the city at one of uh, my other attendings practices part-time. And I thought I was going to do that for a few years. But after doing it for maybe like 10 months, I realized that I just needed to do my own thing. You know, right. Not that anything bad, both places were great. But I just... I always had like a little bit of an entrepreneurial mindset and I always imagined having my own office and my wife really encouraged me a lot. And, you know, she's like, you know, you should do it. And this was in 2008. This was spring of 2008, right before the market crashed. And I went to the bank and I literally, no joke, dude, I borrowed a million dollars from the bank. I didn't have any money, but they would lend money to doctors back then. It was, it was easier to borrow money. Different time. Yeah. Wow. So I had a, I had, um, my daughter was a year old a little less than a year old and she's like 10 months old and I borrowed a million bucks. I was, I don't come for money. I didn't have any money behind me. And I bought a, um, a, a space, a real estate, a uh, piece of real estate on fifth Avenue in lower Manhattan. It was a dump. I had to totally gut renovated. Um, and I started practice, man. I just opened up, I hung up my shingle wow. and, uh, it was rough, man. In the beginning, I would used to live in that office, man. Seven days a week, I used to, you know, I, I had no patience. I just used to wait for patience, like someone would call back. Like, yep, come on in.
1: I was gonna ask, like when you when you do you remember your first day open in totally, the practice man.
0: March twenty third two thousand nine? What
1: was that like? Like how, how did you? It was exciting. Were you, were you it,
0: it was exciting, you know. The, so the construction really went over like it always does. We went over over budget, you know, over time, all that yeah. stuff. Uh, but March 23rd, 2009, I remember my very first patient, I can't say his name because of HIPAA, but, um, I remember he wrote a nice review online also. And it was funny cause the review was like, it was really efficient. I didn't have to wait. And in my head I was thinking, yeah, no shit. You didn't have to wait cause I, there's no one else, <laughs> no here, one else here, here except for you. But, uh, but yeah, I remember it was very dusty the week before. So we had to like dust everything off. They had just finished the construction and I hired two girls, uh, one for the front desk and one to help me in the back. And we got the whole office ready, the three of us. And then we opened up at 7 o'clock in the morning, March 23rd, 2009. Wow. And uh, I think I had three patients that entire week. Three. Yeah. Um, I was kind of hedging a bit because I'm, because I'm a pathologist. I was reading slides for a very large group in Long Island. So I was their pathologist. So I was able to make some income doing that. But it was literally coming in one pocket, going out the other to pay for my practice.
1: Can you explain for the, for the audience exactly what a pathologist
0: Yeah. Is? So if you go to a, a, a dermatologist and... Or really any doctor, but I'll use dermatology as an example. And they take a skin biopsy, that piece of skin goes off to a lab somewhere where someone tells you what it is by looking at that skin under a microscope. So it gets processed in like a very very sophisticated way and placed on a slide, on a like glass slide, like you remember from when you were in high school yeah. or college. Mm-hmm. And then I look at that glass slide and I say, Okay, this is basal cell carcinoma or whatever it is. I render a report and I give it to the doctor. So I was doing that for a group in Long Island. So some of the bigger groups will bring a pathologist in-house to be their doctor. Right. So I was their doctor, their pathologist in-house. So I used to manage their lab and read slides for them. And at the same time, I was seeing my own patients in my New York City office. So I was kind of like doing two jobs.
1: So it kind of helped balance things out a little bit. Totally. I mean, yeah, it
0: covered a lot of my expenses. So I was basically able to hedge my practice with the income I was generating. It was basically having like two full-time jobs. Because the person I took over, it was her full-time job. Um, so I was doing that and seeing, building my practice. And, you know, I did that for years. I actually did that up until just a few years ago. So I kind of had like three full-time jobs for a really long time. Because since then, I've opened up my own lab where I read slides for other doctors. And I have like two clinical practices where I see patients. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, but it's great. I'm fortunate that I did it. And I have Dr. David Kriegel to thank for pushing me into pathology because... It really helped me build up my practices. That is awesome. Yeah. Do
1: you, now, do you remember, <clears throat> I know you said uh, you opened up in 2009. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I'm sure, it's like starting any business. It's tough in the beginning and it can be sh- very stressful. And you're kind of like,
0: yeah,
1: oh boy, you know, I I know what that's like too. And my question is for you: Do you, was there a moment where you kind of felt like you could finally exhale? Like, okay, this is...
0: Yeah, I remember like six months into having my practice... I was able to cover my expenses. I mean, I didn't take a salary for the first like three years, probably right um, but I remember that That's at that awesome. time I was able to like cover my payroll, cover my mortgage payment, quick. cover my maintenance. yeah, it happened pretty quick it's pretty so fast yeah. it took me th- yeah and that was that was cool man like that was like wow, I was like you know like what i'm built what I built here like it's working you know I remember one time my wife came to visit me at the office, and I you know I, I had two employees at the time, but I had this office that was running. And like she said to me, she's like, wow, she's like, you know, you really have like a little operation going on over here, you know? And I was like, that felt really good, you know? Because it was, it was like, you know, we were, I was making some, you know, not making money, but I was able to cover my expenses. Right. And I wasn't losing money. Right. And the then the slowly just kind of, you, you know what that's like when you yeah. start your own business. Um, so that was cool, man. And, you know, that really, um, yeah, and it, it, it didn't take me as long as I thought it was going to take me. That's awesome.
1: And obviously that his had become, Become more and more successful over time and you built your reputation at what point did you decide it was time for location two
0: yeah so when my third was born um we moved out it was just too small to live in the city so we, we we always planned on having like you know we had two kids and a dog and i was actually in contract to buy a bigger apartment in the city and my practice was in the city we were going to stay there but uh god gave us a third child unexpectedly and my wife was three months pregnant when we had <coughs> signed the contract so I looked at my wife and I was like, you know, we got to get out of here. You know, so I literally, she'll tell, I don't know if this is quite the way it went down, but she literally said that I just started looking at House of Long Island. And I just picked a house and I bought it. I know that I know we both played a role <laughs> there. Um, but yes, yeah, so we ended up moving out here in uh, August of 2012 because the house I closed on, I had to do a bunch of work to. And after being here for a few years, my wife actually wanted to start a practice of her own as well. And she was encouraging me to like, you know, maybe you should maybe open up a practice out here. And I did need space because I needed space for a a laboratory where I could process my specimens. Um, So we ended up getting the space that we're sitting in right now. Um, I think we got it in 2014. I opened up shop here in November of 2015. Um, You know, that's around the time when I was talking about like, a, there was this period in my life where I was kind of just like coasting. Um, So I opened this office and this was like a big undertaking. You know, it's, it's a huge space and I did a massive renovation. And it was, again, it was, I was back at square one because any money I was generating from my office in New York city was used to build out this space here. And I had no patients here when I started, you know, so I had to start from here from scratch. I remember my first couple of weeks here, like one or two patients. And it was very demoralizing because I was so busy in my Manhattan office, but I was, it was dead here,
1: right.
0: you know, it was like this weird, like reality that I was living in, where I was like, you know, I'm starting from scratch in one place, but I'm so established in another place, you know, um, which was, it was interesting, but around all that time, um, I stopped the the group I was reading slides for that I was mentioning in Long Island, they were bought by a private equity firm, and the deal that the private equity firm was offering me to stay on board and read slides, just honestly, it just wasn't worth my time, like what was involved so i made a decision to just stop and just kind of focus my energies into my own practice um i think it was all kind of around the same time so there was one particular summer where i kind of stopped reading slides for that group i my practice in the city was doing very well and i had two doctors and a pa that were working for me there i was only going to the city like one day a week i was focusing on building out this office here but i was literally like playing golf it was it was a summer so i was playing golf like four or five times a week nice i was uh yeah i was i was like living the good life quote unquote like I'd arrived right um but you know I remember and i mentioned this earlier that it was like it was an empty time man it was uh it was like I wasn't hustling, you know like I was just kind of like coasting and I was building out this office, so I was coming here and like you know working here a bit. I would go to the city, like I said, one day a week. And I was always very busy. I would see like 40 or 50 patients, like a session when I went to the city to see patients. Um, but things just started like falling apart around me a little bit. Nothing major, but I was having some issues with staff and, you know, like managing my staff in the city office because I wasn't really there that much. And um, some of my personnel, like some of some of the higher level employees that were working for me started having like a bit of friction there. Um, nothing terrible, but you know, it just, it was a weird time, you know, and it really made me like look within a lot and figure out like, you know, a, like what the fuck is going on? Like, you know, and I realized a lot of the problems I was having is cause it kind of took my eye off the ball. I kind of like let off the pedal a little bit and you know, maybe it was a time that was someone, a friend of mine told me this is like, you know, maybe you needed that time to kind of reset, recharge, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, maybe that's what it was. But it made me like kind of think about okay, what is like what do I want to do now? You know, I'm at this plateau right now, and like what, what's next? You know, and you know, looking at this part of that period of my life retrospectively, I read this book by David Malster called Connected to Goodness, which a friend of mine recommended to me, and he basically defines like the stages of success, and you know, one of the stages is a stage called the Arriver stage, where you hustle really hard, and then you arrive. And you know you have some money in your pocket, like you know you're kind of like feeling successful. And there's basically three things that happen at the arrival stage. You can stay at the arrival stage and coast, you know, which I probably could have done. Um, you fall from the arrival stage because like you lose any hustle in you, and then you know that's why so many people who are wealthy get bankrupt. You know, someone's mm-hmm. a ba- lotter they, they get, you know, because just... yeah, you know you've arrived and then you just blow it all. Or you elevate yourself from the arrival stage to the next stage, which I can't remember exactly what that's called in this book. But so I was in that arrival stage for a couple of months and I realized that that's not for me, you know. And I really, you know, through like talking to friends and reading a bunch of books and all that sort of stuff, I really pushed myself into doing this, like what we're doing now. Like I realized for me, my goal is to touch as many lives as possible, you know, and I've had all these amazing transformations in my life and these things that I've done as you know if I can do it and I'm a big believer in this anybody can do it like if I could get fit right. I have the worst genetics for fitness you know I'm really like fighting my genetics well you're, you're kicking their, their well, tail man because I'm putting the work in yeah, right so I see it if I can do it you know and it's not easy you know but if I can do it anyone can do it and if, if like I could share that story and like I could touch one life, five lives, 10 lives, 100 lives, and maybe kind of get a light bulb to go off and someone else said, like Sammy did for me, that's that's the fucking win, man. That's what I want to do. So I realized then that I need to do more. And like seeing the patients in my practice, I can touch, you know, maybe 100 lives a week, right? But if you're more involved on like a larger platform, like, you know, I mean, I don't know how many people listen to this podcast, but hopefully it'll be a lot one day, um, or my YouTube channel, or my Instagram, or, you know, if I put a lot of effort into those things and try to like get this message of positivity and self empowerment out, if I I, could, I have the potential to touch more lives. You know, and, and that's what it's all about. So you know, I've been full core press on this stuff. You know, I haven't taken a salary in a year and a half 'cause I'm putting all my resources back into this, you know, because it's something I really passionately believe in. You know, so I'm like, you know, like I'm balls to the wall with this. Yeah. You
1: completely, know. completely pedal pedal to the metal, and yeah. like you're the true definition of an influencer. And I think that term gets thrown around a lot now on social media. Like, oh, I'm an influencer. You're an actual influencer. You're literally having a positive impact on people with the the message you're spreading, with the content that you're sharing with them, because you're letting people. All you're doing is letting people into your life totally with, with something that you've already been doing on a smaller scale. And now that you have tens of thousands of followers on Instagram and. YouTube and you have... The, this podcast is, is growing on a, on a weekly basis. You know, you really, really are truly impacting a lot of people, man. And and I just want to... Comm- I commend you on that. Like, you're doing a, an awesome job with that. And you can even go in your comment section and see on the stuff you post on Instagram. You know, people are saying, oh, you inspire me. You motivate me, man. Like, you that's... And you said that was one of your goals. you definitely accomplishing that. Um, it, now, for you, obviously you've uh, thus far we talked we started off talking about success you've accomplished a lot you know at still a very young age um obviously you've been on the new york times super doctors list multiple times you are featured in so many different publications you've, you've been on cbs new, uh, news in the morning just a few days ago yeah. uh instagram has verified your account you know which is a big deal they consider you a public figure Um, so clearly you have, I mean, obviously I know you personally, but even from the outside looking in, you have some type of drive and, and work ethic. What do you turn to in a sense of the content you consume? What books are you reading or what are you listening to? Like, what gets you, what gets you going?
0: Yeah, I love that, man. So I, uh, anyone who I admire, I always ask them what they're reading, you know, and I used to read a lot. You know, so one of my best friends in college, his name is Jordan. He was a big reader, and he would always give me books to read. He was an English major, so he'd always like you know read all kinds of cool stuff. You know, like Roots and you know, any book that moved him, like you know Ralph Ellison stuff, so any, anything that touched him. You know, he would tell me to read, and I would read it. And then as life got kind of in the way, like with med school and residency and kids, I stopped reading. Like you know, I just didn't have time to read. So what kind of really set up this push? Now, in, in 20, I think it was like October of 2017, I was sitting with one of my buddies who was like an entrepreneur, and I said to him, I was like, you know, these are my goals. I want to be able to touch more people, but I'm having these problems with my business. I need to get my business in check. And he, he's like, dude, read these five books. So he gave me five books. Um, it was The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, which teaches you how to kind of like systemize your business. Mm-hmm. There's a book called The One Thing. I can't remember who the author is, but it's just basically there's like one thing you need to focus on at a time otherwise you can't multitask really that was a great lesson in there 10x rule by Grant Cardone yes how to like just you know be accountable and scale shit you know and, and think big um uh what were the other two man uh 4 hour work week Tim Ferriss and the fifth book was uh was a book called Traction by this guy named Gino Wickman um, so each one of those books Like taught me something important Which I actually implemented Like I'd read the book And I'd actually implement Whatever the thing That, that book told me to do um, And since then I've been like on a tear Like reading these types of books Like you know uh, the, I just read uh, The Russell Simmons book um, Do You uh, Which was really cool um, It's kind of a little Controversial now But the book was written You know Donald Trump Wrote the foreword to that book it, Isn't it, that crazy? It. Yeah. Wow yeah. Uh, but it was a different time. Um, I'm reading a book right now called "I Will Teach You to Be Rich" by Rabbit Sethi, who's the brother of someone that I'm friends with. Um, it oh, just came out. Cool. He's like a Stanford grad, and I, I know the family pretty well. I went to dinner with them a couple of times. A really amazing, amazing family. Um, so I'm reading that uh, just, you know, just to kind of like read about something a little bit different. Uh, I have like a whole stack of books at my house. The book that you told me to get, Ayush, I just bought. Uh, Save the Cat, which is like teaches you how to write like a screenplay and how to tell a story so uh, someone tells me a book I'll just buy it so I have like all these books that, I, that I've bought that I haven't read yet um, but you know it, I just I always have a book on my nightstand and I always even if it's like reading five pages a night before I go to bed like I'm always reading something you know and, and it's those types of books that are right now that 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 have my eye you know that's awesome um, what advice would you give
1: any? entrepreneur that's listening right now and just generally like general advice that they're kind of in a stage where they don't know maybe what they want to do or if they want to take that leap because and a lot of people sometimes will make a career change or maybe leave their employment to start a business what advice would you give a person that's in that situation because i'm sure someone out there listening right now is 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 dealing with that and i'm sure you attract a lot of entrepreneurs on your podcast so um what would you say
0: uh Two things. One is it's important to hedge the risk that you take. So for Definitely. me, when I was – and I think this is very much the same for you when you were building your business is you had a stream of income coming in from somewhere, right? So mm-hmm. you can't like say – especially if you have responsibilities in life like a family and kids and a mortgage and all that sort of stuff. Uh, you can't say, okay, you know, I'm just – going to stop doing this and I'm going to go balls to the wall with my dream of whatever your entrepreneurial dream is I'm sure it's possible to do that but it takes a very very long time to actuate any dream that you have as an entrepreneur and more so the biggest reason why a business fails is because you don't have enough money so the reason why like 50% of restaurants go out of business business in a year is because they don't have enough funding behind them and one of my patients actually told me this she's a restaurant entrepreneur and I said wow it's such a crazy business like you know how do you do that and she's the one who told me that. She's like, the reason why restaurants go under is because they don't have enough to sustain the year-and-a-half lean period where you're waiting for your clientele. I mean, that, that was the same thing for me when I started my office. I knew I was going to have no patience, man. Like, you know, right. I have no patience. Yeah, have to have a little cushion there. But I have to boy. have income coming in, yeah. you know? A- in, other, in other words, to sustain my entrepreneurial dream, but also to, like, provide for my life, you know? Because I have expenses, you know? i got three pounds i got to feed, you know? Um, so that's one, and... um Actually, I actually had a very good second one, but I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, that happens to me all the time. Yeah, but <laughs> but my, my but the second one really the, the gist of it is is you have to be all in, you yeah. know, whatever you know. And now, now what I mean by that is yeah, you can hedge your bets like you know you should have an income stream coming in or or, or whatever the way you're going to do that is, but then you also have to pursue your dream like insane with insane intensity, so you know, effort is free, as I always. Say. Right. I love that line, you know, and that's the line that I use a lot. I stole it from you. It's a great line. Uh, I mean, um, appreciate but yeah, I mean, like, listen, this is like, I'm, I'm hedging my bets right now, right? Like I'm a dermatologist and I'm making an income of successful practices, but I'm using that income to fund this, you know, to buy the cameras and, you know, have a full-time videographer and, you know, doing putting the uh deploying the funds needed to actuate this dream of mine by making money doing something else right right so that's you know but i'm balls to the wall with both things like you know i'm seeing patients and reading my slides with a 100 percent intensity and then when i'm not doing that you know the remaining hours of the week which is a lot you know probably 50 hours a week or so that i focus on this you know right posting to instagram and making youtube videos you know both of them I'm doing with 100% intensity. You know, it's like Gary Vee always says, yeah, you know, you got to work hard on your side hustle, have your day job and do your side hustle at night. And that, that's what we do, you know? A hundred percent. You know, it's, it's the
1: age we live in. Everybody talks entrepreneurship and hustling and grinding. Yeah. And I don't think too many people understand what true hustling and grinding is, right. obviously. I mean, you're like the definition of that. Um. And, and just to backtrack uh, briefly before we wrap things up, I know we were talking about books. You know, you listed the, the five, your five, your top five books at the moment that you, that helped you along and that you are suggesting to others. Uh, would you ever consider writing a book? I, you know,
0: I've been, yes. The answer is yes. I just have to sit my ass down and figure out exactly how to do it. Um, but yeah, I have, I have some thoughts that are there. And, you know, I think a lot of the stuff that I talk about, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think uh, it would translate well to a book. I just have to. I have to have the time to like to put into it it's it's coming it's coming i'm Uh, listen i'm sure it'll
1: help a a ton of people man just just from your experiences and things you've learned along the way and things that you've you know seen and and done over the years so i mean it's been a long road just dating back from like the humble upbringing you talked about all the way up through high school through college through med school to starting your your practice with no patience, you know what I mean, and kind of like you—you you pretty much bet on yourself by taking out out a million dollar loan from the bank. You said you you had no money, and listen, you hustled, you went full pedal to the metal, and it it shows. I mean, you got your second practice open. You have uh, not only are you have you built a business, you're building a, a, an awesome, amazing brand, which which is two different things. People don't realize is you're building a brand and. I'm excited to see what's coming in the future from you, man, because just seeing the the transformation, not just the physical body transformation like we all know, that's been incredible um, since 2012, but even just your focus. And it's not that you were ever unfocused from what I could see, but I know, like you were saying before, I noticed once you decide you're going to do something like that's it, you made that decision and I've never seen you. Like halfway do anything or wishy-washy on anything wishy-washy on anything or any in any way you know so it's awesome to watch i'm looking forward to to what to what's to come in the future um i do want to close this out a little bit differently um i'll just ask you a couple quick questions and you can kind of just go shotgun the answers the best that you can just so your listeners can get to know you a little bit more
0: give me your three favorite movies Ooh, that, that's a good one, man. Yeah. Oh, man. Three favorite movies. Swingers. I don't know if you've ever seen that. might be before your time. Probably a little bit before my time. It's like a Vince Vaughn movie. It's amazing. I made my wife watch that before. Wait, with Vaughan. Vince
1: Vaughn? Yeah.
0: I think I did see it. Yeah, that's great. That's, yeah, great. Yeah, that's yeah. a great movie. That's one of my favorites. Uh, Love Actually, I hate to say, but I'm a, I'm Never a, sucker, I'm a sucker for romantic comedies. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's a, and that's an amazing movie. Um, And then i uh, got to say Goodfellas, man. Go, okay. That's a classic. Yeah, that's a classic. All
1: right, and if you're gonna work out, and obviously we know you, you have this the state of the art gym at home, what do you got to have playing through your sound system? What are you listening to? What gets you going? Old school hip hop, man. That's. My I sure. mean, I, I knew that answer yeah. because I've trained you through Tribe Call Quest, some of these sessions. Like,
0: basically it's the Tribe Called Quest station on Pandora. I mean, I like new hip hop too, but old school hip hop really gets my blood going, man. Yeah, man. Cool, cool. Now, are you are you currently Netflixing anything? Um. Well, my wife and I are watching billions. Um, Great show. That's yeah. on. Um, it's Showtime. Showtime, though. Yeah, yeah. Great yeah, we show. I mean, the problem is we always fall asleep at like different times during the episode at night. So we're always. Uh, we always yeah. have to keep rewatching the same episode. But <laughs> I like it. I like that. Great yeah. show.
1: Great show. Um, and finally, I don't know. I don't even know if you still eat this stuff anymore. But as a kid, you probably ate breakfast cereal. Give me your top three breakfast cereals. Oh man, I don't even eat cereal, man. I mean, you don't even eat I cereal haven't, anymore. Haven't right? cere- been, I haven't eaten
0: cereal. I've been—I do intermittent fasting, as you know—and mm-hmm. I haven't eaten any of those shitty cereals in like years, seven or eight right? Years, man. But I tell you what, I did like—I like I liked Cocoa Pebbles growing up. I never got into Pebbles, oh, man. So good. I, I like anything chocolate. Cookie Crisp is another good one. A cookie Crisp was okay to me. Um, and then a third cereal. I don't even know of a third serial that I liked growing up, man. That's, i just leave it at those two. Those two? Yeah. Yeah, I know just random questions, but she
1: just wanted to give your audience a little bit something different, yeah. you know, to get to know you a little bit more. But it's been an absolute pleasure to sit in the big chair That's today it, and, and, and speak to and interview the man himself. Um, and obviously, they know where to find you because they're found to listen to your podcast. But if you're not following him him on the other platforms... Check out the YouTube channel. Check out the Instagram. Check out uh, the subscribe to the podcast if you're watching this on YouTube. He's all over the place. He's got some great, great content. And if you're a listener, check this out. There are videos of this on YouTube, guys, Mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't consumed Instagram TV as well. And again, uh, Doc, thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity
0: to interview you today. Thanks thanks so much for doing this, man. Uh, No problem. uh, because it is my podcast, I'm going to close this one out. Uh, so, you know, Justin, this was such a great idea, man. I can't thank you enough. You're a, an amazing trainer, but an even better friend. And oh, man, I, I couldn't about. have a better person, man, uh, conduct this interview of me, man. You did an awesome job. And we just need to have your podcast come on now. Soon. <laughs> soon. It's in development. Stay tuned. If you, maybe this year, though, it will be All out. All right. Love it. Thanks, brother. Appreciate All right, the time. Thank man. you. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Mudgill Podcast. The corresponding video can be found on YouTube, IGTV, and Facebook. Let's get it.